0: We, economic hitmen, really have been the ones responsible for creating this first truly global empire and we work many different ways. But perhaps the most common is that we will identify a a country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually goes to the country, instead it goes to our big corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, power plants, industrial parks, ports, things that benefit a few rich people in that country, in addition to our corporations, but really don't help the majority of the people at all. However those people, the whole country is left holding a huge debt. It's such a big debt they can't repay it, and that's part of the plan they can't repay it and so at some point we economic hitmen go back to them and say listen you lost a lot of money can't pay your debts so sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies allow us to build a military base in your country or send troops in support of ours to some place in the world like iraq or vote with us on the next u.n vote to have their electric utility company privatized, and their water and sewage system privatized and sold to U.S. corporations or other multinational corporations. So there was that whole mushrooming thing, and it's so typical of the way the IMF and the World Bank work, that you put a country in debt, it's such a big debt, it can't pay it, and then you offer to refinance that debt and pay even more interest. And you demand this quid pro quo, which you call a conditionality or good governance, which means basically that they've got to sell off their resources in, in, including many of their social services, their utility companies, their school systems sometimes, their, their, their penal systems, their insurance systems to foreign corporations. So it's a, it's a double, triple, quadruple whammy.
1: The old world is ending.
2: And we have the opportunity to rethink everything.
1: This is a show about the systemic problems in our world
2: and the real solutions we have today
1: to transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse to create an abundantly advanced collaborative society
2: that sustains all life.
1: You may think it's an impossible dream,
2: but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare.
1: We're your hosts, Matt Holton,
2: Amanda Smith,
1: and Zachary Marlow. And together,
2: we can move past this economic absurdity
1: and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new we are monolith Monolith society Society. all right we are live here coming to you from columbia from uh, appalachia and a very special guest john perkins coming to us from i believe the east coast or the west coast of the united states
0: West Coast. Yeah, I'm on, I'm, in, I'm on an island in the Pacific Ocean. Well, I'm actually in Excellent. Puget Sound.
1: So I think a lot of our listeners probably know who you are, but uh, for me, this is a big deal that you're somebody I've wanted to talk to for a very, very <clears throat> long time. I remember picking up your book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, off like my, one of my brother's friend's shelves and picking through it and being like, what is going on in the world? This Is, is this true? Is this a novel? This is a crazy story. And then years later, I saw the Zeitgeist film, Zeitgeist Addendum, which a lot of people in our uh, train of thought and community are were really influenced by, which is a still a great film that I think everyone should see. And uh, your interview in that really just so perfectly like this scalpel just got us into like how the global economic system works, how money is this ultimate weapon, and like really how things work, how things function. And from your perspective, not from a theorist not from somebody reading academic history and saying this is what's happening. From somebody who was doing it. So, as as a little segue to you, um, John, can you just kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about that story about what what an economic hitman is and and your crazy lifestyle that has yet to be made into a movie and should <laughs> and we will.
0: <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you know, first of all, my official title was uh, chief economist at a consulting firm in Boston. Uh, economic hitman was kind of a tongue-in-cheek, uh, it was kind of like spook, they don't call them, they, their business card doesn't say spook, it says, you know, at, uh, commercial attache at the U.S. Embassy or something, but they're spooks, CIA, spooks, We're, we, I had a business card that said chief economist, and I had actually had about 50 people working for me at t- various times, But my real job was to identify countries with resources our corporations wanted, like oil. And today it's more like typically lithium, cobalt, the the minerals and metals that make up the, the green economy. Anyway, we'd identify a country with resources our corporations want and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. The money never actually went to the country. The country signed off on it, and it used its resource, oil, whatever, as collateral on the loan. But the money actually came right back to the United States, to a U.S. corporation, like a, usually a big engineering corporation like Halliburton or Bechtel or Stone and Webster, um, Brown and Root, or maybe uh, General Electric, a big manufacturing company. And uh, they made a big profit off these loans. And they developed infrastructure projects in the country, things like power plants and industrial parks and uh, highways and ports and airports. And and you're and there in Colombia. Uh, you know, I had an office. I had two offices in Colombia. I had one in Bogota and one in Barranquilla. And we were in Colombia. We were primarily developing the power grid, the electric power grid in, in and big in hydroelectric plants. So. Uh the, the country would get these things, our corporations would make a lot of money off them, and a few wealthy families would also benefit from them. Again, in Colombia, you've got a dozen or so families that basically run the country and the economy and own the big businesses. They make a lot of money when electricity is, 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 is more stable and more readily available or when the highways are improved. But the majority of the people actually lose out because money is diverted from health care education, and other social services to pay the interest on the loans. And in the end, the loan can't be repaid. And so we go back uh, to the country, usually in the guise of the International Monetary Fund, and say, hey, you know, let's help you restructure your loan. In order to do that, we're going to have to draw in the collateral, which is the oil or whatever the mineral is. And uh, we also would like you to uh, let us build a military base on your soil vote with us on the next United Nations vote, privatize your water and sewage systems and other public businesses and sell them to our corporations at cut rate prices or sell them to our investors, and uh, vote with us on the next United Nations vote against Cuba, uh, things like that. And uh, so, in essence, what we were doing was building an empire in rather a subtle way through, through economics rather than the traditional military approach. And... I have to say that my most recent book, which is the third in the Economic Hitman trilogy, is about how China is, is doing a much more efficient job at these same things that we did. And you're finding that throughout Latin America today and, and many other parts of the world. And I've mentioned one other thing, and, and that is that the leaders of countries uh, found it easy to accept these loans, even when they knew that they were putting their people in their country deep into debt, that couldn't be repaid. As I mentioned, they would benefit personally their families their cronies their friends but also they knew that standing behind me were men with guns basically what we call jackals and these are people that are usually CIA assets that either overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders and of course we have a long history of that in the United States starting with with Mossadegh in Iran and Allende in Chile and Lumumba in the Congo and Ziem in Vietnam and Fairly recently, uh, uh, Zelaya in Honduras, and those, and, and on and on. So, if you're the leader of a country or the minister of finance or whatever, you, you're offered this, this carrot, this money, you know, that this billions of dollars that are going to help you and your family, or, the stick, the gun, and that was basically what my job was all about.
2: If I might interject there, um, I, uh, I took some notes on a few of your interviews earlier today and, um, I have a burning question uh, for you in particular and I'm sure it's <laughs> one that our listeners will share in, um, and that is essentially, uh, at what point in your career did you see through the veil, for lack of a better term, did you, um, Take a disinterest in being a henchman for the NSA and CIA, and and uh, get fed up with spreading uh, U.S. capitalist hegemony.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Amanda. I'm glad you asked it. I so I have to say, you know, if, through the first seven years or so that I was in that business, I thought I was doing the right thing because I'd been to business school, and the business school models and the world bank models show you that if you invest this money, lots of money in big infrastructure projects in a poor country, the economy grows, the GDP grows. Trickle down. Yeah, trickle down. And and it does. <laughs> the, the models are correct in what they're showing. And, and so I believe them. I thought that what I was doing, I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer in the jungles of Ecuador, and I'd been living with poor people there. And I was very, very interested in, in helping bring people out of poverty. And I thought that's what I was doing. And it was Omar Torrijos, who was the head of state of Panama, and became a, a good personal friend of mine. Um, he 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 said, "John, don't you understand that you're you're lying to yourself and and, and everybody else that that, that trickle down they, we didn't use the term in those days, but now we use it. It it doesn't work work for for the majority of the people. GDP measures how well the wealthy and and the corporations are doing, not the average." Joe. So we can show the economy is increasing if we measure in terms of GDP. That's not necessarily helping the majority of the people. In fact, it usually is hurting them. But in any case, I had believed the system until I started talking to Omar. And I speak Spanish, so I was talking to men on the, people on the street throughout Latin America. I had several offices in Latin America. And, you know, I, I began to see the truth of this, And I have to say, Amanda, that after I realized uh, that I was selling a lie, I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to believe the lie. I'd grown up, you know, the son of a teacher in New Hampshire. We'd never had a lot of money. I'd never done much traveling until I went in the Peace Corps. And now I'm flying first class around the world. I'm staying in you know, the first class of five star hotels, eating in the best restaurants, whining and dining with presidents. I didn't want to give that up, making a good salary. And so for the ne- yeah, for the next three years I, I kept doing it and then I had a moment of enlightenment after after I'd been in for ten years and that's that's when I when I quit.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I just, you know, hearing all that you've said in your interviews and uh, having glimpses of your books, I'll be candid there. um, I thought, you know, a bold admission to make You're essentially uh, validating decades worth of efforts by different people and different groups of people to expose the propaganda of capitalist hegemony across the world, starting with the root, which is United States and their greed and their excessive, uh, you know, striving for growth all the time and just making more more and more money and more and more useless products that nobody really needs and spreading that infection across the world just to get more money into the pockets of the people who own the corporations who are uh, waging these resource wars uh, if they can't get their uh, teeth sunk into the resources that they're after in whatever country.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing system that, you know, it dates back thousands of years, but It's just grown in in its complexity and its subtleties in recent times. And and as I mentioned earlier, that China's taking this to even new levels. But what what I think is really important for all of us to understand is that this whole system has created what we can call a death economy, uh, an economic system that is built on the idea that that businesses have to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And let's increase consumption, materialistic consumption of, as you mentioned, things nobody needs. And you know whether whether this economic man system is implemented by China or the United States or, or anybody else, it's a system that's just failing us. You know, we think of the problems as climate change, income inequality, species extinction, environmental destruction. Those are problems but they're not the problem. They are symptoms of, of, a, of an economic system that's gone global and that we all buy into or have bought into. Quite <laughs> and, literally. Yeah, <laughs> quite literally. You know, where we, we, need, we need to move it away from this idea of maximizing short-term profits and, and materialistic consumption as we know it and into a, a system that's based on long-term benefits for people and nature. And, and I think it's important, Amanda. You mentioned growth. We don't need any more of the growth like we've been having, but we do need growth. We need growth in ways to feed starving people around the world. Right. We need growth in planting more trees and and and, and alleviating the destruction that we've caused. Uh, you know, we need growth in cleaning up uh, the pollution that's in the oceans. You know, finding ways to mine that and in new forms of technology, like you know, to make so- that current solar and wind seem archaic. You know, we need those things, but we need to. So, so this life economy is an economic system that will grow, but it will grow in a very different direction from the old one. And it will pay people to do things that make the planet a, a, a much healthier place uh, in the sh- long run, as well as the short run.
2: Well, that makes me eager to ask you your opinion on the degrowth movement. Obviously, um, in summary, it, it points to the fact that we need to uh, degrowth in certain industries, particularly the ones who are causing ecological destruction and um, widespread uh, social, socioeconomic um, inequality. Um, how do you see degrowth playing a part in what you see being our future economy?
0: Well, if you talk about degrowth to people in many parts of the world, including some of our cities in the United States, they'll look at you like, well, what do you mean, degrowth? We're, we're hungry, you know, we're, mal- we're malnourished. So I, I think what we need to look at is, and, and so the way degrowth is, is often bantered about is it's very elitist. It's coming from people that already have what I have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can say, let's not have any more growth. I got everything I want. All right, I, don't, I live in a fairly small house, <coughs> excuse me, but I love it. And, and yet we've got to recognize that we need another kind of growth. So it's, it's, it's not degrowth. It's re, re, we need regenerative growth. we need regenerative growth. We need to reposition what we mean by growth. And I think that's a problem that people talk about no growth, but they don't define what they mean by growth.
3: Hey friends, we'll return to the main conversation in just a moment, but we're taking this quick break to ask, do you want to do something about all the issues we talk about here on our show? Do you want to learn more, get involved and help us help others break out of the cycle? Step one is to join the growing community of rebels and kind hearts sharing their knowledge and passion. Follow Moneyless Society on our social media pages and spread the message to people who need it. When you're ready, you can get involved by reaching out and becoming a Moneyless Society volunteer. We need every skill imaginable, large or small, if we're going to resist the powers destroying our planet. And even if you don't have time to volunteer, you can help us build the dream with donations of any size. We create all of this community and content because it is our passion, but we need resources to get it done. Monthly Patreon donors receive cool perks like early access to future episodes, and visitors to our website, moneylesssociety.com, can buy Moso shirts and other merchandise that help spread awareness. We're glad you're here, and we hope that you'll keep learning and growing with us. The goal may seem far away, but we can get there together.
1: Uh, yeah. So basically, the John's handiwork of helping privatize the Colombian electric grid worked worked really well. My uh, electricity just dropped out, and uh, we have to get back get back on the horse. So yeah, you said something before we started recording, John, about. Your handiwork in action! and What a good job you did!
0: Said. <laughs> yeah, tongue in cheek, you know what? So yeah, I spent a lot of time in Colombia. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's funny because I I had an office in Tehran, Iran. I had an office in Panama and one in, and two in Colombia, and one in London, I had headquarters in Boston. I was kind of commuting between those four countries, which was. <laughs> Interesting and challenging, but in Colombia it was it was primarily the electrical grid that we were working on and building hydroelectric plants and big transmission lines and you know actually a lot of the rebel groups like FARC uh, started in Colombia because campesinos were very upset with hydroelectric plants being built and transmission lines So the hydroelectric plants would destroy a lot of land that people lived on because you'd flood a whole area to, to build a the pond, the lake, to hold it back, and then uh, you'd uh, you'd send all this power through the grid, these huge transmission lines that would go across Campesino's lands or indigenous lands, but they didn't get electricity. But they had to deal with all the the crap that went on around producing the electricity, and and that was really the the beginning. Uh, groups that today we, we know as as, as uh, terrorist groups or FARC or other such groups in Colombia. And, of course, that's a constant process of trying to negotiate a peace treaty these days, I realize. But um, it's it's fascinating that those started as these grassroots movements opposing imperialism.
1: Well, just a and quick observation there that, that, we, that we call these groups that are resisting what is incredible violence, violent. We call mm-hmm. them terrorists when the systematized and sort of whitewashed, greenwashed corporate, you know, structural violence that is depriving people of food, water, shelter, and the ability to live in their own land, the ability to live for free in countries, forests, jungles, you know, all kinds of ecosystems and natural environments that supported people for thousands of years, tens, hundreds of thousands of years that these companies come in and take over and these, you know, uh, countries on the other side of the world come in and deprive them of their ability to be free in their own lands and say, you owe us this money. You need, you owe us money. You need to live. So someone posted something today about, um, the, um, basically proving that the cattle farming is doing more damage than coca farming. And a, a friend, a mutual friend, actually, uh, he, he basically said it's the same butchers. It's the same people who have the money that was that was you know pushing people into coca farming because that was the commodity. That was the you know the natural relationship that humanity has tended for thousands of hundreds of thousands of years. That we are now declaring a cash crop because of you know all of the manipulation and and fu- really fuckery of the CIA and and uh, you know the war on drugs and this this really interesting, just super crass corrupt history that made this land what it is but those people who had that money who made the money through the drug trade are still in power they're still running the government and they're shifting the money around to where to the cash crops and commodities that are going to net them the highest income which right now is beef and so you're seeing in this country the the big one of the big dramas here is seeing these pristine jungles and you know beautiful greenery everywhere you go and every mountain vista you see they will just be these slashes these patches where people have slashed and burned, set on fire, their own land, their own sacred, native, beautiful land that will, you know, that can sustain life indefinitely, destroying it with fire for a few bucks, for money that for less money than it takes to live for money that is artificially depressed in value. And so you have all these tourists and people coming to live here to take advantage of how cheap it is. And it's just like, this is, this is an extremely rich country. As Michael Parenti said, this is not an an underdeveloped country. This is an overexploited country. This country is rich. I mean, I'm looking around me now in this incredibly fertile, luscious jungle. I see banana plants growing that I could not eat all of them if I wanted to. You know, like there's mangoes that litter the ground. And yet this rich country has been reduced to dire, extreme, brutal, painful poverty because of this social weapon that we call money and debt.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, and you, it, when you think about it, what's the richest continent resource-wise on the planet? Probably Africa. Not, not now with the green economy and, and the lithium triangle that's coming out of Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. That may be changing, but traditionally, Africa is the richest continent. And what's the poorest continent, people-wise? Africa. That's where the poor, that's where people are poorest. That's where life expectancy is lowest. You know, it, it, because of colonialism, because of exploitation, because of exactly what you described. And I remember uh, Marlo and, and and Amanda that when I first was being, knew that I was going to be sent into the Amazon, Amazonian jungles of Ecuador, Colombia's neighbor, uh, as a peace corps volunteer back in the late sixties. I began to research the people I was going to be living with, the Shuar indigenous tribe and. You know, all the information I get said they were some of they were the poorest people in the world. they were they, they were among the poorest people in the world. And when I got there, I, I didn't find poverty. You know, I found people that didn't have any money. they had they had no currency, but they had really nice lives. traditionally, they worked about two hours a day before the, at the early morning. <laughs> you know, the men went hunting in the early morning with their sons, and the women uh, attended the, the gardens with, with, their, with their daughters. And then once the heat of the day took over and they'd done what they needed to do, which was enough to, to live very healthy lives, uh, they spent the rest of the day playing with their kids, uh, swimming, making love. Uh, you know, just they, they're living. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, wait! I thought these are the <laughs> poorest people in the world, and, and and you know, they're they're only poor by this this metric that we use. And as I said, I was also then as an economic hitman trained to use the metric of GDP, which does not measure prosperity. It measures how well the rich are doing.
1: You know, the richest people that I've ever met are the, are Wakos and the Kogis that I've been able to, been very blessed to spend time with down here. It's the reason I'm here. And they, they're the richest people in the world because they don't use money. You know, they don't have the most technology. They don't have the most, they have no stacks of cash because for, for a majority of their people still live in villages where they don't use money and they live yeah. this beautiful life connected to nature. Where they, you know, they have issues, they have problems, they're not, they don't have an infinite abundance of everything, but they have a social system that is based on trust and love and family and this, this social connections that are so rich between each other that everyone in their society trusts each other. There is no there's there's no enemies. There's no like I mean there there's there's human drama always, but it's like Yeah, I just, I can't really put into words the tranquility and the peace and and the power in being able to go to these villages and seeing like, this is it. This is human society. Work with nature in a regenerative way, in a sacred spiritual connection to meet our needs naturally and distribute them equally and give people what they need to live. Work on our needs together to solve our problems together. So we're not all running around scrambling, like trying to figure out where to get food and how to get money so that you can get a job or get a job so you can get money so that you can buy food and all these contrivances that like we're all on our own. We're all individuals. We're, they do things together and they just get that shit out of the way. They figure it out. They have a system and then they're free to like explore consciousness. And as you're saying, r- run and jump and swim and play and explore nature and, and just experience life, which we don't, we don't get to do that. That's what
2: we're robbed of in, in Western society. We're robbed of existential experience like an organic one what you all are describing are people living as a community in its <clears throat> truest form i get so excited when i hear reports such as yours drawn about experiencing life with indigenous peoples and in case listeners are new to our podcast and didn't hear me mention it 100 times in the first season or 50 times in the second season essential reading for understanding what's fundamentally wrong with western society is marshall Celine's original affluent society uh, research and work where he expounds on the fact that As John pointed out so wonderfully, people that live without a GDP or currency or stocks or Wall Street or suit and ties actually aren't impoverished. They are leading rich, fulfilling lives, something that we may never experience here in Western society because we've gotten things so convoluted. As some of the memes say, uh, how do we screw up so bad we have a credit score? How do we go from raising our food and being communal and living happy, fulfilling lives to having credit scores and jobs and in stocks and shareholders and whatnot? Yeah. Um, if I could uh, jump in with um, a question, I'm hoping you'll lend some insight on, John. Um, I've been uh, very enthralled with the general strikes that have been taking place over the past few years uh, since the pandemic took place uh, particularly. Um, and one that stands out, of course, is the one that took place in India after Prime Minister uh, Modi and his cabinet made this sudden decision to adopt the farm bills, what they're known as the farm bills, that left um, farmers just high in uh, in India. Uh, and that's obviously because corporations showed up and said, give us, you know, your resources, we'll give you our money and everything will be great. But obviously that's that's not the way that worked out, nor would it have. And I'm wondering if you can lend some insights considering your background um, on how that might have played out.
0: Well, yeah. I, I, and, and I guess I would like to change that narrative just a little bit, Amanda, because I never worked in India. I've been to India, but I never actually worked there. But I spent a lot of time in Central America and Mexico. And you've got a very similar issue there, although the people haven't been striking. They've been leaving and migrating. And our, what we call our immigration problem here in the United States is really a farmer's problem. When you come right down to it, it's a problem in U.S. policy. So the North Atlantic Trade, uh, trade Association and the, and the uh, Central American trade, trade Association, NAFTA and CAFTA, uh, have destroyed the economies of Central America and Mexico essentially. Uh, for, and so here's an example. Uh, let's say, and I'm going to just I'm going to just use some relative terms here that aren't aren't necessarily accurate, but let's say it it costs an uh, American agribusiness. $10 to produce a bushel of corn or cotton, $10 to produce it. So they have to sell it for $12 or so to make a profit. Uh, and let's say that in, in, in Central America or Mexico, it costs uh, the, the Campesino $5 to produce that same bushel, and they can sell it for 6 or $7. But the Ameri- because of TA- CAFTA and, and NAFTA, the American agribusiness is allowed to get a huge subsidy so let's say they get $7, uh, it costs them $10 to produce it. they have given $7 on that. So now they can sell it for four or $5 in Central America. But the, the the farmer in Central America, it still costs him $5 to produce it. And so he's got to sell it for more than that. He can't do it, can't do it because of our policies in the United States. And, the, the, and, and nobody can impose tariffs under these trade agreements but there's no law against, against subsidies. The, most of the Central American countries in Mexico can't afford to subsidize the, all these small farmers. So the small farmers lose out and everybody associated with that, the markets, the, the local banks, uh, the, so, all the trickle, the trickle down from that, you know, the, the spinoffs from that, the repercussions of far, the small farmers not being able to compete with the big agribusinesses is huge. And what do these people do? Well, they either turn to drugs or crime, or they try to cross the border and come into the United States. And, you know, I've got a, 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 a actually a newsletter coming out today. If people subscribe to my newsletter, if you don't, you can do it on my website, johnperkins.org. There's a little <laughs> box put in your email address, and it's on this very issue uh, the immigration problem. And the way to solve it is certainly not by building walls or trying to stop people from coming. It's to help the economy. It's to reverse the laws that we've already made, and mm-hmm. may, maybe go beyond reverse them and encourage, you know, to help small farmers and all the associated uh, businesses and, and lifestyles that are that are, that are of that. So, so it's a little different from India, but it's the same basic issue. And that is the power of big agriculture, the power of big business to control governments around the world. And that is what it really all boils down to here is the power of what I call the corporatocracy uh, all over the planet uh, to to control governments. You know, and here in the United States, they have tremendous influence, As we all know, nobody gets elected to a high position in the in a Congress or the presidency without huge amounts of money from essentially from corporations or their their major owners.
2: I guess what I'm fishing for, I'm sorry, I'll wrap up really quickly, Marla. I guess what I'm fishing for is to hear you say in so many words that U.S. capitalist hegemony is what directly influenced that occurrence in india where corporations came in and said you know give us give us your produce we'll give us we'll give you our money and everything will be great and everybody be rich and everybody be prosperous uh but thankfully the farmers seen right through that and it was so incredible to witness in real time you know through the news um the unfolding of a nation standing up to U.S. capitalist hegemony and saying no, we don't want this in our lives, in our nation, in our business. This is not the way we want to practice. This is not yes. the way we want to live. And obviously, it's what we need to see a lot more of. Um, and then my mind goes to the strike that's happening in France right now. Um, it's pension reform. It's not the same as a commodity, as you know, farming and produce and so on. But it. Uh, it would seem unquestionable that that is another instance of this influence that is uh, materializing in different different levels of affection throughout the world
0: yeah there's no question it's not just american hegemony it's now it's chinese also and that's particularly true in india where you know india is a member of the brics organization said uh, the brics bank and all the spin-offs brics stands for brazil russia india china and south africa very, very powerful. And uh, so, you know, the, the, that's a, that, that banking system uh, impacts, is, 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 it has a greater economic impact than all the G7 countries combined, or the G5 countries combined, and banks like the World Bank and IMF. So, and that's very recent. So, up until recently, it's been really in the hands of the United States. But within the last five or six years, it's become, you know, it's China. And one of the reasons that countries like India and Brazil and others are not standing against uh, Russia is because they are so tied in to BRICS, which which is Russia and China. And uh, so they, you know, they've got to hedge their bets in, in systems like that. So you've got this. And again, it's really the big corporations that are driving it. And let's not forget that the multinational corporations today are interwoven very strongly with the Chinese economy and economies around the world. So it's no longer just the American system. It's 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 maybe started here, and a lot of the corporations have their headquarters here and don't pay any taxes here, but they're truly global.
1: Sounds like it's mutated. Yeah, I mean that's that's the uh, that's the kicker is that. even even as the dollar hegemony is changing and the current imperial order is shifting. And I think there's a, a lot of optimism that I see in these countries being able to print their own money, basically, to not have to do everything in dollars because the governments of these countries are effectively useless because they need dollars to do things because the United States in this you know, hegemonic order has been able to print its own dollars. And since it's the global hegemon, you know, it's, it has dollar sovereignty or dollar supremacy um, over the rest of the world. It's, it's a world reserve currency. That's what I'm trying to say. And so other countries have to uh, do their transactions in dollars. So they need to earn dollars. They need to provide a hundred dollars worth of goods and services to get the dollars that the United States just (laughs) sorts out, you know? And so that is, that changing order is powerful. And it is bringing power back into the hands of countries, but but it's not really bringing power back into the hands of the people necessarily. But it, the ability of the United States to no longer issue sanctions is a huge shift. I mean, it, it's like taking the nuclear option off the table or something. I mean, it's that's that's a, a something I would love to talk to you about, John, um, or for you to talk about, is how the um, the ability. Or the, the end of sanctions is going to change the global world order. And I, as I see it, uh, to kind of frumble the answer a little bit before the question, it seems like cha- uh, China, the rest of these countries are just kind of taking the reins of capitalism because the United States has been so brutal and so unfair in the way that they have wielded their power that they have you know exploited these countries mercilessly. And if they try to rise up, they kill them or they send in guys like the the young John Perkins to saddle them with debt and you know use all these covert means to saddle them and and whip them into shape and there's nothing they can do about it. I am yeah. really bad at like <laughs> getting a question out of out of all this because it's all so interconnected and it's all so it just surges with interest. I mean this this story that's unfolding on the planet right now is so fascinating and so uh dire. We're all trapped into this really deadly cycle where even the people who are the victims historically of this global hegemonic debt-based system are becoming they're gaining the reins they're gaining their power back and in this cycle of abuse it's like they're not learning and saying okay let's move toward the decommodification of things let's move to a new kind of economic system it's a blood rush of of uh, of commodities and money that they can make and new markets and you know china's expansion and And just continuing the same cycle that's driving us to the bottom. It's a race to the bottom.
0: It's a race to a dead planet, and nobody survives, nobody wins on a a dead planet. There are no winners. Uh, Yeah, I agree with you.
2: You were speaking earlier about the contrast between a death economy and a life economy before one of the many times the uh, privatized grid there in Colombia got, you know, um, maybe you could speak to that at this point, because uh, obviously it's all about solutions. You know, we've got to start picking up what's left and moving forward. And you seem to have uh, some of the pieces of the puzzle.
0: Well, yeah. So a death economy is, as we've said, based on maximizing short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. And it really uh, became prominent in 1976. So prior to 1976, when I was in business school before that, I was taught that a good CEO uh, makes a decent rate of return for his company, but he also takes really good care of his employees, Uh, gives them pension and sets up pension funds and, and, and gives them health insurance. And, and, and uh, I'm using his, incidentally, intentionally here because at that time there were almost no women running big corporations. That's all changed. But, uh, and, uh, and, a, and a good CEO also takes good care of the communities uh, where his corporation works, helps uh, pay for recreational facilities, maybe educational scholarships and so on and so forth. But in 1976, uh, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics. And Milton Friedman had a tremendous Im- influence around the world. Uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher of England and, and Reagan of the United States, leaders around the world bought into Friedman. And he said, you know, the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. He went on to say, if you maximize profits, you'll take care of all the social and environmental costs. And of course, mm-hmm. it was an absurd concept that <laughs> has been proven to be absurd, and yet we're still buying into it. And it gives corporate CEOs the mandate to do whatever it takes to maximize short-term profits, including essentially bribing congressmen, politicians, government officials. In the United States, we have a way of bribing people that's not even illegal. So theoretically, it's not corruption. You know, <laughs> the campaign finance is a big one, but there's many others that I employed many, many different ways. And it includes destroying the environment. It maximizing profits gives corporate executives the right, the mandate to destroy in the short term what their companies and everybody else will need in the long term. It's a terrible, terrible system. And it, it runs counter to everything humans have done for the 200,000 plus years that we've been humans. It's only been within the last blink of an eye that we've really focused on this ultra, ultra uh, super inflated uh, economic system and, and materialistic system. And you know, it's, so that's one of the things that gives us hope that we find that indigenous people uh, have always lived in what we'd call a, a life economy, still do. They, you know, Marlo mentioned the Kogi. I've spent time with the Kogi. They have a life economy, continue. And increasingly the pressure's being put on them to change that. And the same is true throughout the Amazon, throughout so many areas. Uh, but we've all come from backgrounds that embraced what we call today a life economy. And so it's, it's it's important that we move back into that and recognize that we can pay people to do things that make life better for the planet, for the animals, for the plants, for humans, for 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 all life on this planet. And let's define life as being the rivers and the mountains. Also, <laughs> it's it's not necessarily just what we think of as as living. It's all part of this incredible Gaia ecosystem that we that we live in. This living being that we
1: beautifully inhabit. said yeah. I just wanted to uh, say a couple things there. That your the that that point in time of 1976, that shift is really like the neoliberal transformation. And I wanted to say that earlier to talk about the way you were talking about agriculture and agribusiness taking over. I was thinking about the Zapatistas who were directly and you know verbatim rebelling against the neoliberal trade reforms and NAFTA. And this process whereby corporations can look at a map of planet Earth and point to a region and say, you're going to grow this. You're going to make this for us, which is like people talk about the, you know, World Economic Forum, you know, controlling things and conspiracies and, you know, like one world government and all that stuff. And it's like we have that. That's what we have. Where people are pointing at a map and saying these millions of people are going to do this for us. And I just think about looking through history and seeing so many examples of this drive toward profit and money and creating new markets, which is a phrase that's so benign and, and, and sounds so nice, right? You know, creating new markets, but creating new markets historically has meant enslaving people, taking over their countries, forcing them at the sword or the gunpoint to do your bidding. I was thinking about a, a passage from David Graeber's debt that somebody uh, dredged up on the intertubes, about uh, 1901 in, I can't remember the country, but it was a country in Africa. It was in, in 1901, basically, mm-hmm. they instituted a debt on the people, a tax. And it was like a, a moral tax. It was like, we're morally teaching them how to work. We're teaching them the value of work. And it was like that they, they were taxing these farmers who were so poor that just had to basically give a huge portion of their crop. And so they were basically giving up more of their rice crop than they needed to live. So they were selling it to these merchants who they would have to buy it back from themselves. And so it's like the organization and agglutinization, the accretion of this system into the corporate system is definitely a, a phase shift and is, is an ability of like the system to evolve itself into a system where it's able to do much more harm at scale. But I feel like, And I don't, this isn't just a feeling, it's like from all the academics that I've talked to about the history of markets, the history of trade, the history of the evolution of this system, of the capitalist system, of money, of markets, even before capitalism in the 17 or 1800s, you know, really took shape. Uh, It's like this market system that Aristotle and Plato were like, this is a brutal system. It doesn't value life. It destroys the world. It's going to destroy society. And their only disagreement was, can we reform it or should we destroy it? and so i think we're at this point in human history where all these systems and all these bad practices from governments and corporations and and militaries and you know dirty energy and all these death systems are coming together into pushing us to to change to to fundamentally change to change everything in a new way and that's really at the core of what we're talking about on this program is Going beyond just paying people to do good to the environment, but moving beyond the need for money to begin with, to basically take that the social sort of structure that people like the Kogi have where they run things in a collective communal way with, you know, scaled villages, circles and circles that come together in councils and manage the needs of the people in the way that the Zapatistas do in a cooperative way instead of this competitive market system where we're commodifying the earth we're forcing people to earn their right to live we're forcing nature to earn its right to live and it'll never be able to to pay because it it has only itself to give so that's that's like that's the new territory that's the new frontier is in building and articulating that life economy and that's what we're all about and that's that's why i'm so glad to hear you going on people's shows john and talking about this this economic shift, this, this structural shift, not one regime to another, but a, a fundamentally new system.
0: Yeah. Well, then, Well the, And the real question is, um, how do we do it? And I think we have to recognize that probably most of the people, I would venture to say probably everybody that tunes into this program is not just a victim, but also a collaborator. Uh, we are all consumers. Absolutely. And, and Many are investors and work for companies, and therefore we have a lot of power. We have a lot more power than we realize that we have because these corporations are dependent on us. And I, I have to say that I, I know a lot of people in high positions in corporations. I just took a person from the C office of one of the t- top uh, 25 corporations in the world uh, to, uh, to the Maya people of Guatemala. I, I take trips to people, you know, I take trips to Maya and uh, sometimes to Kogi and, and others. Again, that's on my website, johnpergins.org. But so, you know, and, and, and what, what I constantly hear uh, from these CEOs is I have kids, I have grandchildren, I want my company to be greener, but I know that the, what my customers want is cheaper prices. And I also know that if I lose uh, market share or the stock price goes down for a while, uh, my primary investors will fire me. And uh, they'll replace me with someone who only cares about stock prices or or market share. So I got to stay in here and do the best that I can. But I'm walking this very fine line because I've got these customers out there who, who want things cheap and, and I've and I got... Investors, owners of the company, who who want to make bigger profits, and so I keep hearing I hear over and over, "Help me!" and ask all your listeners, for example, to to write an email or, text or, or t- a text or a tweet or whatever you, whatever it is they want, they, they, how are they communicate to pick a corporation that you want to see changed, and and write them an email say, "Hey, I love your product, but I'm not going to buy it anymore." until you pay your workers in, in Colombia a fair wage, or you clean up the pollution you've caused, or whatever the issue is, and send that to the corporation, send that to all your social networking circles, and ask them to send it to all of theirs. And, and I've, I've, I've got to tell you, I've, is, I've talked to a lot of executives that want to get, they say, well, we don't read all of these, but somebody does, and we get a matrix once a month that tells us what our customers want. We can take this to our primary investors, and uh, and insist that we change things and you know that's that 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 is something everybody can do and it has an impact it's it has impacted corporations already and continues to do so unfortunately most of us even when we shop responsibly we don't let companies know we don't we don't tell Nike, that we're not buying anymore from Nike because they're using, they're not paying their workers in Indonesia a, a, a fair wage. We don't, we, we may stop buying from them, but we don't tell them. And we don't tell the company that we are buying from, hey, I'm buying from you because you're trying harder. You're doing a better job than anyone else. We need to do that. We need to recognize that this is, you talk about a conspiracy, we're all part of the conspiracy as long as we buy into it, as long as we participate in this. And I would dare say that all your listeners are participating on, on one level or another. It's hard to be alive on this planet and not participate, even if you're a Kogi or a Shwa these days because the system has has reached those places. All, as you know, Marla, the, the Kogi are, need money too. They don't need nearly as much as the rest of us and they have other values in life, but they can't, they can't get their food to market these days without getting right on a bus, which costs them money. So this whole thing is it's it is a, a system that is, keeps just regenerating itself and we are a huge part of it and we need to recognize there's no them in us we're all in this together there's some thems that are that are much that have a lot more power but they too are vulnerable and they know they're vulnerable
2: this seems like a gorgeous opportunity to segue into the um the question I wanted to ask you most, probably, um, because in all the research I've done on you, I not- I noted that you speak frequently and highly of pre-predatory capitalism, as you refer to it. And your call to action is, as you said, we try and influence the feedback loop by taking the time to speak up and let corporations know how we feel about their practices and their products and what it is that we want. Um, I just have to wonder, though, have you envisioned um far enough ahead to see what the future may look like if we are successful in the influence of that feedback loop in so far that institutions such as wall street have to be addressed head-on perhaps even abolished to some degree for lack of better term because getting back to milton friedman's doctrine um at the core of that is wall street that's that's his theory and praxis um the fact that shareholders are the only ones that uh, that these corporations and people are beholden to. So if we get people to influence that feedback loop and say, hey, we want corporations to behave more responsibly, then the shareholders and the profits, they take back seat. Can capitalism continue if the shareholders and profit take back seat? Well, That's here. essentially the question, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's, are we ready to move on without capitalism? Well, it depends on how you define capitalism. So uh, the, the the markets that the Kogi go to, or uh, the, the farmers market, and maybe in your community in Kentucky, Amanda, that's that's capitalism. And my grandson's lemonade stand is capitalism. So capitalism is disguised is just, is is uh, defined. The, the, the basic definition is it's a system where the means of production and marketing are not owned by the government, and so. What's, a, what's interesting about what we have here in, in the United States today and through much of the world is, I think, it, I do call it a predatory form of capitalism because it drives out competition. And the government doesn't own it, but it owns the government. And so we've turned this thing around. Uh, and it's, it's interesting if we look at China once again. Uh, in China, ch- most of the big corporations, the Chinese government owns 50, more than 50, slightly more than 50% of them. And so they get money from these corporations that they can put into bringing the 800 million people out of poverty that they've been so successful at doing. In the United States, on the other hand, we have these, these strong private corporations. They don't even pay taxes. You know, they benefit from all the infrastructure they get, the education, the airports, the ports, everything else, but they're not paying for them. And so we've, we've got this horrible system. It's, it's, so I, I think we need to make a distinction between predatory capitalism, which has been, which we've had for quite a few years now, and it really skyrocketed under Milton Friedman, and, 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 tr- and true capitalism. Uh, So I I don't see how human beings are going to live without some form of capitalism, to answer your question. Can we live without this predatory, corporate-dominated? Yes, of course we can. Is it going to happen in my lifetime? No, probably not. I'm 78 years old. That's why I I am focused right now on changing the corporations, doing what we can to move them around. Ultimately, I think we have to change that system, The, the, the corporate system, the, the banking system that we have the Federal Reserve System the central banking systems they got to go, but but there's a there's a bridge in between there's a step in between which is where I think you know I have to devote my life to because you're a lot younger you you can get into much more of this the stuff That's that gracious comes, of you that, that comes <laughs> later so but I you know I get, and, and, and I want to see these corporations do whatever they can to bring things around. and then let's look at some real, truly uh, alternative systems. and there's you know, there's many examples of them, but if we can if we can keep moving toward this goal of uh, of uh, not maximizing short-term profits but maximizing long-term benefits. Mm, yeah. and I think a key element here is, throughout history, and indigenous people still define themselves as a part of nature. We have defined ourselves as apart from nature, supreme over nature. You know, we've really defined ourselves as aliens to our own planet. We, we, you know, we see ourselves as as, as supreme, you know. I, I, I hate white supremacy, but even more, I hate human supremacy. The idea that we can control nature We can't, and Gaia's teaching us that we can't. The earthquakes, the climate change, the fires and the droughts and all of that stuff, they're showing us that we can't. So how do we move more and more into some sort of an economic system that defines us as a part of nature, that lives within nature and has a great integration with nature? And I think we start with with the corporations now, and then we work on moving beyond that. And the future that you may be looking at is probably very different from what we have
1: right now. Hopefully,
2: thank you for for your input on that.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, John, I just want to say that uh, I think that the the core values that you are espousing to and where your heart is are just you know absolutely in alignment here. And I think it's a very interesting phenomenon that I'm noticing more and more. It's that the language itself and how we define certain words, especially ideological terms often are the sticking point when the the meanings that we each hold individually are actually aligned. So your definition of capitalism is very different from my definition of capitalism, which I mean, I think the the traditional definition of capitalism is, is not just that the government doesn't own the market. It's that because in the way that these systems arose, it's that, that there is basically capitalism is private ownership of the market. So it goes from being this system that before that the market existed and it was created by states by empire, by this, you know, uh, conquering colonial force that comes to you, takes over your people, destroys you militarily, and then taxes you in a currency that then it, that currency, that tax creates demand for the currency. So that drives the creation of a market. So people have to go and, uh, uh I'm, I'm going to fish or I'm going to make shoes and cause they have to sell those things one to furnish the army and two, because they owe the conqueror, a picture of their face on a coin every year. So that's what creates the market. So this idea that markets have always existed through society and that the Kogi you know, need to go to the market, they never needed to go to the market until now. And I'm, I'm actually here documenting them and working with them in this crucial inflection point where they are for the first time having to do that. And the Arwakos are are making that call that they need money to buy their lands literally just to protect it. And you yeah. know they have to go to the market to do that. And so this idea of a transitional bridge system is really where I'm focused right now. I mean, ultimately, we need that long-term visionary total systemic shift. But I think we have the p- potential and possibility to create a bridge system that exists parallel to the market, that exists with its own logic, with its own ethos and value system and regenerative values coursing through it and its own ethic of of not exploiting wage differentials of not exploiting workers of not having a few people that are making decisions for all at its essence it's an intercooperative system
2: i think you're saying something non-hierarchical we're shooting for non-hierarchical yeah. and corporations are at the top was, of the hierarchy I, I, as I, the was, world we know today
1: i just have i have a long you know, systematic spiel that we're working on putting out there and presenting as an option to go forward. I don't think we have time today to get into explaining that bridge system or the system beyond that, but But there is another
0: way. So, uh, so Marla, what I would suggest, and I know we're running out of time here, so I hate to interrupt, but um, focus on how we get there there's a lot of literature about a much better system. There's the TEAL organizations, you know, the, one of the nonprofits I founded, Pachamama Alliance. We've gone to the levelized management where, where there is no hierarchy. And it's struggling. It's, it's really struggling. And I, I think it's working, but it's, been, it's a struggle. These, these sort of things are being shown. The question is, how do we get there? It's one thing to theorize about it, and there's a lot of that going on. And it, it, sometimes I get very fed up with the n- number of people that are talking about what should be done, what ought to be done. The real question is, how do we do it? And how do we do it today? You know, not, not what's gonna happen 20 years from now, because nobody knows. And that's not, not gonna happen in any case unless we start it today. We've got to it's like writing a book. I mean, I may have a vision of a book I wanna write. It's a great vision, it's a wonderful book. Confessions of an Economic Hitman, it's a great book. But where do I get started? It's not gonna just happen. I gotta sit down and write the first sentence. And and we're very much in that situation today too, where it's easy to theorize and to talk about, you know, a a, a utopian world. And we should strive to gain that world. But what is it we're gonna do today What are you going to do today? What are you asking people who are listening to the show to do? Give them, you know, we've got to start moving toward actions more and more and more. Amanda, I can see here just just it's
2: well. I've I've been starting small. Um, I'm, I'm running a community outreach program, trying to make sure people have food and get people together that are otherwise strangers across the table over a plate of food so they recognize their neighbor's face the next time they see them in town. It makes it harder for them to turn their cheek when they see someone that they know from their hometown experiencing a social or cultural injustice of some sort, a structural injustice. There's, there's a plethora of solutions because there's a plethora of issues that all fall under the umbrella of systemic failure and and so everything that we're working on right now is so emergent that it's hard to pin down exactly what we should call people to do but you're doing it. get involved you're get involved it. right
0: you, you are I'm you're trying. doing it you're doing it and and that 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 one step that that, that one step of working to, to feed people and get them to look at each other across the table that's a huge step it's not a small step. It's a big, big step, and we've got to recognize that and honor it. And that's that's where we've all got to got
1: to go. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you for that encouragement.
1: <laughs> I was going to say that the uh, ultimately, I wasn't going to dive into the utopian, you know, fully automated, you know, regenerative bioeconomy. You know, it, where I'm at right now is in working on the transition. Is in the bridge. Is in how do we create a transitional system. That we can institute today that we can start channeling the energy the resources the finances the labor the ideas and the attitudes and and all our will to change our will to do better into a new structure that is of its own design not just the intentions of people in it because you have a lot of good intentions in a bad system that still produce bad outcomes because they have to but we can create a new system fundamentally that is a transition that we can work in today. We don't have time to get into the whole thing today, but John will definitely be in, in conversation about it, you know, and we're we're gonna be working on putting out more media and more literature and more designs for this system, for how people can come together into an intercooperative, decentralized, communal-based, you know, system that progressively moves away from money, away from commodification that gives people more services and access to what they need to live, that allows people to create a structure where within their structure, within their village, within their company, within their cooperative, they have access to the things that they need and they're not working for the wage. And that's that's actually, there's an ability for companies to cut their costs because if you provide people housing, food, healthcare, the things we need, and we are collectively owning and stewarding these companies. They're not owned by someone else. They're not ultimately amenable or you know, uh, subject to the whims of the investors, but the people who are in them, who work in them, who are owners, who own their own world. There, There's infinite incentive for us to create beautiful environments connected to nature, growing and developing products regeneratively that we can sell within the market. But then we have our own society outside of that, where we're not trading bits of paper with each other so to meet our needs. We manage things collectively and we're able to do things in a more efficient, more sustainable, more just way, using all the tools and technologies we have today. It's there's there's just so many solutions packed into it, but ultimately it's about creating a transitional business model, a living model. And that's that's our mission right now. That's our goal. That's the that's the step yeah. where we have to put pen to paper, articulate it. And find the others and spread it to them. I've been out here in this wild wasteland of of uh, Colombia, this this fertile like paradise that's also this like pirate fucking drug lord wasteland, you know. And uh, I've been talking to a lot of people who are working to build communities and people who have companies, and and I've been in this like kind of evangelical position of talking about this transition of, of explaining the problems to people and they're like, okay, hey, I agree with that, but what's the solution? What do we do? And then I've explained it to them. It takes, it takes a whole dinner conversation, but at the end of it, when the fire is low, almost every time they're like, I'm with it. That sounds great. Let's do it. So there are answers, not just long-term visions of the, the you know, utopian, you know, Venus project like world we want to live in, but we can create a mutually assured feedback loop of communities and cooperatives mutually supporting each other. I have a friend here in Colombia who has a a cooperative of a hundred farmers that they're working together to create a system where they are no longer competing with each other, where they're merging their interests. They're not us against you. I mean, there's just, there's so much to talk about, but I think we're kind of coming up on time here. John, uh, I really hope to have you on again. Love
0: to do it, yeah.
1: This episode was really stressful. One of the most difficult we've done. There was uh, an entire family of, Colombians that showed up and uh, started cooking and dancing and singing like 20 people uh, unexpected So I had to work around them power kept going out internet kept going out just uh, a lot of things went wrong and I say that to say that a revolution is not a bed of roses this is not easy work it's very difficult especially doing this on the road I, I produce these podcasts like I never know where I'm gonna be I don't have a home I travel, I stay in hostels, I stay on couches. I s- don't really ever know where I'm going to be. And there's, there's very little dependency or, you know, predictability to that. So I say that to say that I love doing this. I love these conversations. I love being able to connect with people like John, to be able to connect with people like you, listener. Uh, but it's difficult. And um, Moneyless Society overall is uh, going through a lot of uh, struggles, changes, growth, evolution, We're always changing. Um, Matt Holton, our founder, writer of the Moneyless Society book, which you should go and purchase and read because it's a great deep dive on systems thinking and how to understand the world and what to do about it. Matt is uh, on his own journey right now. He's working on his own personal life and struggling. Amanda is working really hard just to survive. I'm struggling in my own weird way. And uh, all the other volunteers and people we work with are working overtime to create something beautiful to take our free time and use it to free ourselves and other people. So, all of this is a tremendous labor of love. We love doing it. We do it because we love it. It's intrinsically wonderful, but it is a lot of work, and it would help us to be able to have more donations, more support, more financial support. I know, moneyless society, you guys need money? Well, we critique these systems because there is no alternative yet, right? The light bulb was invented by candlelight, as we like to say. This is it. We have to exist within the rules of this system as we work to design, organize, and ultimately build an alternative, a way out. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the support. We really appreciate that we're able to have radical, beautiful conversations like this and that people watch them and listen to them and love them. Almost every week, we get at least one person reaching out saying, I love the message. I believe it. I see the change that needs to be done. I have a little thing that I can do, and they reach out to join our organization to get involved and to help work together to do something about it. And that's my call to you, to reach out. So don't just look at these problems in the world and, and say, oh, well, well, what can I do about it? You can't do anything as an individual, but we together can do a hell of a lot. The sky's the limit. The, there are many worlds that are possible beyond this narrow death economy. So thanks for listening thanks for the support if you're listening on an audio platform give us a review hit us hit that like and subscribe button leave a comment just tell us how you feel tell us a a company a country you'd love to see get cooed (laughs) i don't know love you guys anyway we'll uh we'll have more shows coming um schedule be a little regular we're bringing things together but a direct call to action, anybody who wants to make media, anyone who wants to help us with these shows, to help cut clips, to help spread the word, to get involved, and ultimately, keep using that word, I hope this isn't the ultimate fate of humanity to destroy itself or something as abstract and silly as money, but ultimately, we have the power. We can create this world and make it into whatever we want. So if you want to do that, if you have skills, if you have interests and you want to work, work together with other great people who are doing something about it, we're working on long-term, large-scale models for uh, integrated community centers, for new ways of, of doing business, new, new models, intercooperative transitions. Hey, that sounds interesting. Let's get the other end and do it. All right, thanks folks, take it easy.